Good evening. Uh, turn with me. W- turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to John chapter eleven. John chapter eleven is what we'll be looking at tonight. Uh, we're going to do something perhaps a little bit out of the ordinary, and we're going to read almost the whole chapter tonight. I know it's a familiar text, uh, but it's one that I want to refresh our minds at as we take a look at this evening. This is John chapter 11 in your Bibles. It is a blessing for Shay and I to be back with you all. We've missed you guys dearly, and it's always a blessing to be back. It's throwing me off a little bit because the auditorium is completely different than the last time I saw it, and uh, it looks spectacular. You should be there with me now at John chapter 11. We'll begin in verse number 1. And the scripture says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not to death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he had heard that he was sick, he remained two days still in the same place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. His disciples said to him, Master, lately the Jews have sought to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if a man walks in the night, he stumbles because there is no light in him. He said these things, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. However, Jesus spoke of his death but they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. Then said Jesus to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had been already Uh, He had already been laying in the grave four days. Now, Bethany was near to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. And many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary uh, still sat in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you will ask of God, he will give it you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And when she had so said, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The Master has come and calls for you. As soon as she had heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, 
but was in that place where Martha met him. Then Jesus, I'm sorry, then the Jews who were with her and comforted her in the house when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out, followed her, saying, she goes to the grave to weep there. Then when Mary had come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Therefore, Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay on it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time he stinks, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you should see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people who stand by, I said it, that they may believe that you have sent me. And thus, when he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Will you join me in a word of prayer as we begin? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to be here together tonight. Father, we thank you for the hope that we find in your word. We thank you for this portrait of Christ that we see in John 11. And God, as we look at this text, we pray your spirit would take your word and apply it to each of our hearts in a special way. God, I pray that you would give me direction as I present your word. And may we be more conformed to the image of Christ and more trusting of his character as we leave the service tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 11 is possibly the most familiar, one of the most familiar texts in the book of John. It is without a doubt, other than the resurrection of Christ himself, one of Christ's most notable actions recorded in the Gospels. I don't want to focus specifically on Lazarus' resurrection tonight. In fact, there's many things that we could look at at this text tonight that I'm not going to focus in on. We could spend the entire sermon talking about Jesus' statement about his being the resurrection, which is a fascinating thought. He doesn't say, I give resurrection and life. He doesn't say, I am the source of resurrection and life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's an incredible thought to think about. But that's not what we're going to look at. Scripture indicates to us that Jesus is the express revelation of who God is. And from that perspective, I want to investigate this story. Throughout this story, we, we are hit over and over and over again by questions that come from Martha, questions that come from Mary, questions that come from the disciples, questions that come from the Jews. And if you take all of the thoughts of all of the questions that are asked of Jesus in this text, they all can be boiled down to one question. A question that strikes the heart of each individual in this passage and strikes the hearts, perhaps, of each individual in this room as we are faced with tragedy, as we are faced with suffering, 
as we experience loss and uncertainty and pain that does not make sense. The question that touches the hearts of each of the people in our text tonight and touches each of our hearts in our trials is this. Where is Jesus? Mary and Martha lose their brother Lazarus, having sent to Jesus a messenger saying, Lord, the one that you love is sick. And the expectation on their hearts and minds is that Jesus would jump up from where he is, about 10 hours, uh, 10 hours of walking away, and come to the rescue and heal Lazarus. The expectation of the disciples is the same thing. The disciples are stupefied by the fact that they stay in the same spot for two days. And when Jesus tells them Lazarus is dead, they can't understand his purposes. Why would you go now? Why would you go now when the, when the Jews are after you and they are planning to kill you? When Jesus arrives, the question on the heart and mind of Martha and Mary and the Jews surrounding them is this, where was Jesus? What Christ shows us of the character of God in this text provides for us the answer when tragedy, when suffering, when pain leaves us asking, where is Jesus? Simply, when we ask, where is Jesus, the first thing we must remember is Christ is in control. Can you say that with me? Christ is in control. It is impossible to read this text without walking away with this thought. Jesus is fully in control of the situation. The first thing that we see from the very beginning of this is that Jesus knows all that's going to happen. He opens this up in John chapter 11. Or it, the, the passage opens up in John chapter 11. Jesus receiving the news of the messengers sent by Mary and Martha, and his immediate response to them is the, to this messenger is this. This sickness is not to death. This is not how this story is going to end. They hear from the outside, outset, the end result of this will not be death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified by it. From the very outset, when the very news breaks that Lazarus is a sick man, Jesus already knows what's going to happen. Jesus decides to wait for two days there, and interestingly enough, it says, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, this is for your sake that I have done this. We're going to see how that works out later in the text. But he stays back, and the disciples ask him, or the disciples are speaking with him about Lazarus' state and what they're going to do, and Jesus makes the statement, our friend Lazarus sleeps, meaning he has died. Jesus did not receive word of that. Jesus did not go, walk 10 hours while the disciples were sleeping, and come back walking 10 hours to get the report that Lazarus has died. He knew this of himself because he is God and he is omniscient. Jesus is fully in control insofar that he knows all that is going to happen. Jesus then makes this amazing statement to the disciples. Did you catch this? In verse number 14, uh, verse number 15 at the very end, he says, nevertheless, let us go to him. We don't talk that way about people that have died. We don't go to see someone who has passed. We may go to the funeral. The natural statement would be, let's go to see the family. Let's go to comfort them. Let's go to be with them. Let's go give them hope. Let us minister the gospel to the people around who are thinking about death with the passing of Lazarus. No, Jesus' statement is this, let us go to him. This text not only shows us that Jesus is in control and that he knows all that will happen, it also shows us that Jesus is in control because he works all 
for our good. As Jesus is conversing with Martha in verse number 24, verse number 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And what she thinks in the moment, she's thinking theologically. She knows, yes, Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the one that raises the dead. Jesus is the one that will give us resurrection at the end of time. But he is reminding her that he is the source of life. Her brother will rise again. And the very thing Jesus does at the end of the passage is that he raises Lazarus. Christ works this tragedy for good for Martha and for Mary. Their brother is returned. Christ works this tragedy for the good of many. They come to faith in Christ. We read later on in the book of John that many people come to Christ specifically because of the testimony of Lazarus. You don't normally read someone's obituary and then talk to them a few days later. That's not normal. That wasn't normal then. That isn't normal now. Christ was completely in control throughout this situation. And Mary and, the Mary and the disciples and the Jews missed that. I think it's interesting to take note of what Mary says. She makes the statement in, <clears throat> excuse me, she makes the statement in verse number 32, then when Mary had come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary only thought Christ was in control when he was there with her. She did not think that Christ could control situations after they had taken place. She did not think that Christ was all-powerful, and she was about to see that. Folks, when we experience tragedy and uncertainty and turmoil and pain, when we are faced with things in our life that we do not know the purpose of, nor do we see how they could possibly work out, we need to readjust our focus to this thought, Christ is in control. Christ's control in this story should bring our minds back to Romans 8.28, a passage I'm, I'm sure is familiar with all of us. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the, call, who are the called according to his purpose. I, I think we read that text and don't realize we do this, but we read that text as, and we know that all things work together for good, and all things are good things. All things means all things. All things includes the good things, the things that we want to have happen, the successes in our life, the answers to prayer, the blessings, the positive outcomes to situations. All things includes the neutral things, the days that are boring, the days where nothing happens, the situations that are mundane and seem to mean nothing with us, the interactions that we have with coworkers and relatives where we're able to mention our faith or even just display our faith in our reactions, those mundane little things God is able to use for good because he is in control. But all things also includes evil things and bad things. All things includes tragedy. It includes loss. It includes sin done against me and even sin done by me. Now, God is not the author of sin. God makes no one sin. God does not want us to sin. But the point of the text is, what Paul is getting at, is God is greater than all things. And in the lives of you and I who have trusted Christ, he is able to use all of those things together for our good. I've explained Romans 8.28 to my teenagers with this comparison. Uh, many of you, 
either grew up taking these or you gave your children these as they were growing up. Are, are all of y'all familiar with Flintstones um, vitamins? Yeah. When I was young in the 90s, okay, we had the chewables, and then happiness came along later when they had the gummies, okay? But those are delicious. Those are positive. Those are enjoyable things to take. I have met people that said they took those vitamins as candy because they thought they were candy, okay? They're delicious. They're positive. But we don't take them because they taste good any more than we take adult multivitamins because those taste good. Because we all know those don't taste good, and if you've taken an adult multivitamin and you've let it hit your tongue for too long, it's like licking a battery. It's not a good feeling, okay? But both the good, the Flintstones gummies, or chewables if you're in my age bracket and above, the good and what our taste buds would call the evil, the adult multivitamin, both of, us, both of those have the same goal our benefit, our growth, our health, our maturity. And in the same way, the experiences of our life that to our soul and to our mind taste good or even taste ill and evil and bitter, God is able to use both of those things for our benefit, for our maturity, for our growth, for our development. Paul talks about this at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, that he, that God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in any trouble, and he is able to use our experiences, our difficulties that we have faced, and the comfort that he has given us so that we may comfort anyone in any trouble. God uses good, neutral, and even evil situations in our life for our benefit, for our maturity. When life strikes us with this question, where is Jesus? We must remember his control. He knows all. He's more powerful than all. And he can work all together for our good. If you're uncertain why you have faced a certain hurt or a certain suffering, you have this hope as a follower of Christ. God is using that suffering to make you more like Jesus. God will bring you through that suffering to grow you. God will bring you through that suffering to grow your faith. And God will bring you through that suffering to grow your obedience. While it may not have the outcome of Lazarus, that Lazarus died and was risen from the dead, while it may not be that God works out your trials and your pains and your difficulties through something miraculous in this life, God will use all for your good and for his glory. Christ is greater than your circumstances. When life makes us ask, where is Jesus? We not only need to trust his control, but we must secondly and lastly trust his compassion. This may be an, un an unfair generalization, but it seems to me that people fall into one of two extremes. Either you are completely fine with the intellectual side of this, that God is completely in control, he can use all things together, he can work it all out for your good, or that's what you struggle with. Likewise, this second concept that Christ is compassionate might be what you can latch onto really quickly, or you have struggles grasping. I know for myself personally, I'm more of an intellectual person by nature. I'm more of an analytical person by nature. When I look at the difficulty of my life, it is easy for me to latch onto this thought, well, God's in control. God knew that what was going to happen. It's not a surprise to him. He's able to use this for my benefit. It's going to all work out. 
but it's hard for me to grasp the fact that God is also compassionate. And as I worked through this text, this shook my heart. It blessed me, but it shook me because I, I couldn't wrap my head around it at first. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look at this. Uh, we, when life makes us ask, where is Jesus, we not only need to trust the fact that he is in control, but we must also trust the fact that he is compassionate. His control is never separate from his care. This text reminds us over and over and over again, Jesus loved these people. He loved Mary, he loved Martha, and he loved Lazarus. There's two different words for love that are used in this text describing Jesus' relationship to these people. He loves them in an agape sense, which is the, the concept of love that we talk about a lot in the New Testament. It's God's nature that he is self-sacrificial. He gives of himself for the needs of others. It is a love that is active. But the second word that describes Jesus' love for these people is a love that is relational. It's phileo. It's not only an active sacrificial love, but it is an emotional, relational, compassionate love. Not only does he love these people and love us sacrificially as God and Savior, he also loves us relationally with compassion, with care, with interest. Not only is his compassion part of his love, the second thing I want us to see is his compassion is shown by his patience. I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but there are few things in life that I find more frustrating than when I think I've expressed myself clearly and everyone misunderstands me. I work with teenagers, so needless to say, I'm misunderstood frequently. <laughs> I, and in my humanity, it's, it's not always easy for me to show compassion through patience. But that's exactly what we see Jesus do. Every single statement Jesus makes in this passage, other than Lazarus come forth and untie him and let him go, is either questioned, contradicted, or misunderstood. Everything that Jesus said, everyone responds with either what are you talking about or you're wrong. And what's amazing to me as I think of Christ's compassion, as I struggle through difficulty, as I struggle through tragedy, as I struggle through pain, he does not ask me to figure everything out. He simply asks that I trust him. And the God that is in control, the God that knows all, the God that is working all together for my good and will bring things to resolution, is also the God that is patient with my humanity. He loves me sacrificially. He loves me relationally. And last, which is the most striking of all to me, is Jesus' compassion makes him hurt as his people hurt. The shortest passage in our English Bible is John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. But when you take a step back to think about the significance of that, it might blow your mind the way it did mine. The God of the universe incarnate, who knew all of this would take place before Lazarus was born, let alone the earth was created, who knew that I would preach a sermon about this text, underlying this, underlining this point some 2,000 years later, the God of all creation that knew all things, that was working all things together for good, that knew that Lazarus was as good as alive as far as his power was concerned, is gripped by the pain and the suffering of this family. He hurts with those that hurt. He is a compassionate Savior. The, the text describes his emotion several different ways. 
Look with me really quickly here at verse number 32. I'm going I'm to go back a little bit before where we were. Uh, it says, Then when Mary had come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit. The next thing it says, and was troubled. And then in verse 35 says, he wept. Those three things describe three different emotions and actions. When the text says that Jesus groaned in the spirit, one of the senses of that word is literally frustration. He's not frustrated with Mary and Martha. He's not frustrated with the Jews. He is frustrated with the sting of sin and death on humanity. He is groaning, aching, you could even say, over the pain caused by the curse. As he's seeing these people cry before him, he is also troubled, which is the idea of being twisted inside. It's that knot that we get in our chest right before we, we react to something really sad or really painful that we've experienced. It's that feeling almost right before you cry. It's a twisting inside. It's a constricting. It is a pain. And then he wept, which is also a very specific word. It's, it's not tears of hopelessness. Jesus isn't, isn't falling apart here because he doesn't know what's going to happen. He does. This is, this is a sense of a silent but steady crying. Silent tears streaming down his eyes. As he sees the pain of those that he loves, as he sees the hurt that they face and the heartache that they're going through, all the while knowing what he's going to do with his situation, he shows his compassion. He hurts with us as we hurt. If you're like me and you have a really easy time grasping the fact that God is always in control, where you and I often need to spend time is thinking on the fact that Christ is compassionate. He is not a cold chess master moving pawns around to win a game for his own glory. If you are not like me, if you're on the other side of the spectrum, and it's easy for you to understand the fact that Jesus is compassionate, and he's loving, and he cares, and he's patient with our misunderstandings, and he hurts with us as, he, as, he hurt, as we hurt, we also need to remember the fact that Jesus is not so compassionate that he's rendered helpless. It's not that he feels emotion so much that he does nothing. He hurts with us as he works in us. He hurts with us as he works things together for us. He is both the God who is in control and the God who is all compassionate. And as we look through the text, we see that everyone is missing this balance. We run into problems when we miss the fact that Christ is in control. And we run into problems when we miss the fact that he's compassionate to the extreme of one or the other. Martha was willing to accept Jesus' power, but she was not able to see how that worked with his care. Mary and Martha both knew that Jesus loved them and Lazarus, but they could not see that he was still in control as they felt their pain. Folks, God does not waste our pain. He does not coldly allow suffering and difficulty into our lives. He uses that suffering for our good and for our glory. And at the same time, Jesus is not so compassionate that his sympathy means he's not in control. His love for us has emotion, but his love for us also has action. He cares for us 
and works on our behalf. He hurts with us as he works in us and for our good. Every person in this room is either hurting or knows someone who is hurting. And when life makes us and those that we know ask this question, where is Jesus? We find hope when we know two things. That Christ is in control. And Christ is compassionate. God does not ask you to play his job in your suffering. He does not ask you to know all. He does not ask you to fix all. He does not ask you to understand all. He does not ask you to sacrifice all. And he does not ask you to bear all the pain yourself. The Savior that we have is compassionate and in control. I leave you with this simple thought. When life makes you ask, where is Jesus? Remember his control and remember his care. I'll pray with you, and Jeremiah will answer us over to you. Father, we thank you for the hope that we find in Christ. Father, I thank you that I do not need to know the pain of every person in this room, nor the problems of every person in this room, nor the tragedy of every person in this room, nor do they need to know mine. God, I thank you that there is no pain that comes into our life that has, pur- that has no purpose. Father, you know our frailty as humans. And you know that when we are faced with tragedy and suffering and the consequences of sin, we are often confused and we often get a wrong view of you and who you are and what your plans are. Father, I thank you that regardless of the issues in this room, the answer is still the same, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God, as we go from this place and as perhaps even now we consider tragedy and question and suffering that we face, May we remember you are in control and you care. You work for our good as you hurt with us in the pain. And Father, we thank you that as we trust Christ remembering these things, we can find hope. May your spirit apply your word to our hearts as necessary and God give us guidance through the remainder of the night. In Jesus' name, amen.